Coming up on Tech News Weekly, I'm Jason Howell, and I start today's show talking with Kyle Orland from Ars Technica. He joins to talk about the Unity price structure change and how developers are upset. And I'm Micah Sargent, and we talk to the Mozilla Foundation's own Misha Rykov about how cars are the worst product category they've ever reviewed in terms of privacy and security. Man, yeah, that's some pretty scary stuff. Um, also, my story of the week about MGM and Caesars, you know, the Vegas properties, as well as around the US, the U.S. and other places. Uh, ransomware attacks, they each have a very different strategy for how they deal with it. Plus, the U.S. has kicked off its 10-week trial with Google. It is the modern web's look at uh, a company that may be trying to take over the Internet, at least when it comes to search engines. All that and more coming up on Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 303, recorded Thursday, September 14th, 2023. Developers unite against unity. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by our friends, IT Pro TV, now ACI Learning. IT skills are outdated in about 18 months. Launch or advance your career today with quality, affordable, entertaining training. Individuals use code TWIT30 for 30% off a standard or premium individual IT pro membership at go.acilearning.com slash TWIT. And by ExpressVPN. If you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, make yourself as invisible as possible with the number one rated VPN, ExpressVPN. For three extra months free with a one-year package, go to expressvpn.com slash TNW. And by Drata. All too often, security professionals are undergoing the tedious and arduous task of manually collecting evidence. With Drata, companies can complete audits, monitor controls, and expand security assurance efforts to scale. Say goodbye to manual evidence collection and hello to automation, all done at Drata speed. Visit drata.com slash twit to get a demo and 10% off implementation. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. I am one of your hosts, Micah Sargent. I'm the other guy. I'm back, Jason Howell. Hello, Jason. It's good to see you too. Yeah, thanks for covering for me last week while I was at my nephew's wedding. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. And, uh, you know, as is always the case, you step your, you take your foot off the gas pedal of technology news, (laughs) even for a week. And then you go, and then you come back. Yes, it really is a scramble. It's like, how do I recalibrate? I'm still paused on the fact that you have a nephew old enough to be married. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't expect that. So I can't believe congrats that Congrats to your nephew. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, it's it's crazy to watch your the, the little ones become big ones and then suddenly get married. Uh, anyways, let's talk about some tech news. And actually, this story is a biggie, um, especially if you go to the Ars Technica article that we're going to be discussing today, you'll see it has an insane amount of comments, which means people are angry the gaming industry in upheaval this week with the news that the unity engine was implementing a new fee structure and i'll give you three guesses pretty divisive is what it is <laughs> kyle orland wrote about this for ours and is here for a return visit it's it's good to have you back kyle 
Hey, thanks. Good to see you, Jason. Yeah, good to see you too. So before we get into the massive you know, amount of changes and, <laughs> and all the work that you're doing, kind of tracking the legal issues of this story, um, first of all, what is Unit, uh, Unity's pricing structure now? Because it's, it's easy to think that like the change happens immediately. It doesn't happen until the end of the year, but it's coming. Right. It's looming and people are upset about it. What is it prior to the change at this point? So right now, Unity is proudly the royalty-free game engine, and that's why it's been so popular with yeah. a large segment of the game development community. Um, in fact, if you're using the personal version and you're not making, I think, $100,000 a year in revenue, you can get it completely free. You can release your game and not have to pay any other fees, any other uh, percent of revenue or anything. Now, once you start making a little bit of revenue, you have to start paying for the pro or uh, industrial versions of the engine, but that's just a per site license like you would have for any other software where you pay, you know, a few thousand dollars and you get full access to the full version of the engine for all your developers. But you still don't have to pay, you know, any percentage of your revenues. You don't have to pay for every sale, uh, you know, a small bit like you do to Steam, for instance. You just get the engine and you use it. And that's why people like it. And is it is it kind of alone or ha, rather has it been somewhat alone in that regard? Like, has it been kind of the choice for indie developers because of this low to no uh, price structure uh, compared to some of the other competitors out there? Yeah, the big and small developers actually like it because of this um, Unreal has um, in recent years introduced a structure where the first million dollars of revenue are royalty free because they want people to the smaller developers to actually try out unreal. But after that, you have to pay, I think, 5% of your revenue to unreal. Once you have a million dollar game and everyone thinks they're going to have a million dollar game. So they're like, eh, I'm not really sure I want to go with unreal. So a lot of people stick with unity, especially as students, you know, since you can get the free educational license, a lot of schools teach Unity and just give all their students Unity to make these projects that aren't going to make money. So why not use a, a full functioning uh, free engine, essentially? Yeah, yeah, indeed. All right. So obviously things are changing. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be talking about it in these terms. So what is the new pricing structure and why is everybody so upset? <laughs> so the new pricing structure introduces a per install fee once you get to a certain level, uh, it depends a lot on whether you're using the free personal version or the uh, pro versions that you have to pay for initially. Um, but once you hit a certain threshold of success, uh, it starts at $200,000 of revenue and 200,000 installs. Then you have to start paying per install uh, up to 20 cents per install. Now, this is kind of unique in the industry. You know, there are revenue shares all over the place, you know, Steam, Unreal, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. Paying per install is not really something that's ever been done. Uh, Unity says they have this unique algorithm that can track how many times your game is installed uh, without actually using any like privacy invading phone home technologies. But it's really they're being really vague about that, and people are really worried about that. So that's that's just one side of it. Um, you know, there are a lot of issues, not just with the way they're doing this, but the, that it's a change, you know, for years, they've been proudly the company that won't nickel and dime you. Right. Uh, I think there's a 2015 quote, that, you know, there's no royalties. Uh, we're, we're completely free. And, and that's what they've sold themselves on. And now out of nowhere, uh, if you're sudden, if you're successful with the unity game, you could end up paying a lot more than you budgeted for. Um, and this will also apply to games that are currently out 
not previous installs, but future installs of current games, if that makes sense. Uh, I mean, it, what you said makes sense. It doesn't make sense that that would be <laughs> right. the case. Right. But. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little hard to understand yeah. uh, where they're coming from here, especially for developers that have counted on this structure for years or might be in the middle of a project that no you know, they spent two, three years making. And now they're pretty much, you, you can't start over after that, but now you have to, you have a big line item for unexpected fees that uh, Unity really gave no indication were coming. Well, and I mean, you can't start over necessarily, or can you? I mean, there are some, <laughs> you know, game developers who are saying, you know, um, and actually, um, credit to John Ashley who linked me to, um, a kind of a, a, a page, uh, about Megacrit and Slay the Spire. And they're basically mm-hmm, saying, sure. like, you know, we've invested an insane amount of time into this. We chose this platform for a reason. And now, you know, we're kind of facing the reality that if, if these changes that are about to occur aren't undone, like they're, you know, it sounds like they're, they're basically going to give up on this and, and, and change course. And I'm, I'm pretty certain like they're not alone in that. Some, you know, some other developers are probably making pretty drastic decisions as well. So there's quite a few developers I've heard from who are basically locked into unity for the time being They they have to finish out, you know, their current project because to start over again and rebuild from the ground up on a new engine would be too hard. But Pretty much universally, everyone I've heard from is saying we there is no way we will use Unity for wow. our next project, and we can't recommend anyone else to because even if okay, even if you can afford this for a big project, like you know, if you're selling I don't know a twenty dollar game, even a twenty cent install fee is not going to break the bank. What it is though is kind of represents a breach of trust. Yes. is what the developers are thinking. They went into this with one idea of what Unity was. They were paying a per site license just for the engine. They figured they could get that. And now, just changing it in midstream, Unity has erased all of that goodwill, and there's no guarantee that they won't change things again in the future. Um, you know, So why would you use an engine like that if you don't have a partner that you don't feel will just take as much money as they can with new rules that they make up later. Yeah. You know what, um, either fairly or unfairly comes to mind for me. I can't help but think about Google and Hmm. as, as kind of a point of comparison when it comes to trust of a brand and, you know, year after year, time after time, Google will roll out. And I guess Stadia is a great gaming related example of this. You know, Google puts out this thing to much ballyhoo, you know, within the company. We love this. We're behind it, you know, and, and, and (laughs) they're hoping that everybody's going to buy into it and, and make it a success. And at some point they deem, you know, as any business has the right to do, they deem that, you know, this thing is not meeting our expectations as a business, as a company. And so it's undone. The, the, the downside to that is like what you're saying. It, it really impacts customer and developer trust in even going in that direction to begin with. I'm really Mm -hmm. curious to see like the level at which this threatens Unity's position in the gaming market and if they yeah. will undo it. Cause I mean, we've seen Google do, you know, do that where they're like, okay, wait a minute. Maybe we need to, you know, do about face. They don't do it very often, but, um, could you see Unity doing yeah. that in this case? Yeah. We'll see. The, the Stadia situation was a little different because For I sure. think if you bought, if you bought a Stadia game, I think you had the understanding that, okay, maybe Google will not support this forever, especially if you were paying attention to the industry. Yes. Uh, with Unity, I feel, I feel like if you, you know, developed a Unity game, you know, 
three years ago or started on a game or, or put out a game, you had this feeling that, okay, Unity for years now, over right. a decade, has been this royalty-free company. That's their whole thing. They're going to keep that. And then all of a sudden, on a random Tuesday, they say, no, now you actually have to pay us starting next year for every install, even on games that were already released. Uh, so that's just an even bigger breach of trust than just you know getting rid of a product that uh, didn't succeed. Um, what it yeah. brings to mind for me, actually, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the year, uh, Hasbro, the makers of Dungeons and Dragons, tried to change the licensing terms mm-hmm. for their products. Uh, you know, people who are making modules for the game would have to start paying uh, some ridiculous licensing fee if once they started making money. And there was a huge fan outcry about that. There were weeks of, you know, wizards trying to backtrack, trying to ameliorate things. And finally, they just turned around and said, you know, we give um, we we're, we're going to totally turn this around. Forget we ever said anything. Mm-hmm. For Unity, I mean, that could happen. The the game development community is that mad. It, it's it's very similar in that regard. The difference here is I'm not sure that Unity cares as much yeah. about those creators. What this is probably focused on is a few large, you know, free to play game makers or companies like Blizzard who have been, you know, using Unity and um, getting away very cheaply. And they want to get some revenue from those big guys. If that means that some smaller companies can no longer use Unity and are no longer paying, you know, a few site license fees and, and move on to another engine, they might not care as much if, if all they really care about is the bottom line. That's a good point. Yeah, really good point. Um, somebody in our Discord actually just linked to a story uh, posted yesterday about CEO uh, Riccatiello. Is it Ricky Tiello? Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but uh, how he sold you know around fifty thousand shares this year of stock. Obviously, with this you know uh, coming ahead, and I know that you mentioned in pre-show that you've been tracking a lot of the legal kind of ramifications of this. Um, I don't know if you know anything about this this particular story or if you've been looking into this, but kind of in your work, really, really scrutinizing the, the potential legal aspects of that, what, this, what, what's your take on, on where this goes from here? Yeah, I, I want to be careful with the insider trading uh, allegations. He's sold stock in the past, and apparently this recent stock sale was a very small part of his holdings. You know, it could be totally coincidental, maybe sure. he wanted money for a beach house or something. So I don't want to get into those motivations. Uh, Let the SEC do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as the legal issues, you know, it's kind of surprising to people that they're allowed to just change the rules midstream Mm -hmm. like this, right? If you put out a Unity game in 2019, you read their terms of service and you thought you had, you know, it says, oh, we're not charging fees. And you thought, oh, okay, that's what I'm expecting. And now to turn around and say, no, that game in 2019, now if people install it, and uh, it reaches a certain threshold, we are going to charge you. Can they really just change the rules like that? Um, as far as I can tell, I'm still looking at, uh, you know, years of terms of service and updates and such, but it seems like they have a good case that they can. There's the clause in the terms of service that basically says we can, you know, change these fees, we can change these terms whenever we want. Uh, there, there are some con- conflicting things. There was a thing in 2019 where they said uh, we will always... Um, let you keep the old terms if you don't update the game, but then they got rid of that. So there might be some legal avenue there. Uh, it, it gets very complicated very quickly, and there probably will be some sort of court case over this, if I had to guess, uh, some class action of developers who said, you know, you misrepresented this to us and it's going to cost us money. Certainly. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how, on, on the legal route, I'm not sure how successful that will be, but 
you know, beyond the legalities, it's really more about trust. When you're in business, uh, you know, these contracts can protect you, but really you're in business with a company that you have to trust will treat you fairly and trust will be a good business partner. Now that they've made this move, I'm not sure a lot of developers are, are going to feel that way, no matter what the legal contract says. Yeah, yeah, kind of poisoned the well at this point, yeah. as they say. Well, Kyle, um, always appreciate, <clears throat> excuse me, always appreciate your work at ours. I love the work that your entire team does, and I love following uh, your reporting. This is a very detailed and, you know, uh, 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 scale and scope of this particular story. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for coming on to talk with us about it today, Kyle Orland at our Technica. Um, if people want to follow you online, obviously they can find it on the site. If they want to follow you on like the socials, where can they find you? Um, I'm Kyle ORL on Blue Sky, which is where I do most of my posting. So hopefully you can get an invite. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> right on, Kyle. Thank you so much and keep up the great work. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. All right. So it turns out that new car smell comes with a large amount of privacy trade-offs. So the good news, you got new car smell. The bad news, your privacy is destroyed, <laughs> essentially. So um, that's coming up here in a moment. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you uh, by our friends at IT Pro TV now ACI Learning. Our listeners know the name IT Pro TV as one of our trusted sponsors for the last decade. They've been on the network for so long. As part of ACI Learning, IT Pro TV, now IT Pro has elevated their highly entertaining, bingeable, short format content with over 7,200 hours to choose from. New episodes added every single day. ACI Learning's personal account managers will be with you every step of the way, fortifying uh, your expertise with access to self-paced IT training videos. You get interactive practice labs, certification practice tests, super helpful stuff. One user shares, excellent resource, not just for theory, but labs incorporated within the subscription. It's fantastic. Highly recommend the resource and top class instructors. And that's kind of the beauty of it. You're not just watching, you're participating, right? They have um, those labs and um, kind of kind of work built into what you're watching. It's really helpful. Don't miss ACI Learning's practice labs where you can test and experiment before deploying new apps or updates without compromising your live system. MSPs, they love it. Retake practice IT certification tests so you're confident when you sit down for that actual exam. ACI Learning brings you IT practice exam questions from Microsoft, CompTIA, EC Council, PMI, and many more. And you can access every vendor and skill that you need to advance your IT career career in one place. ACI Learning is the only official video training uh, for CompTIA. Or you can check out their Microsoft IT training, their Cisco training, Linux training, Apple training, security, cloud, and the list goes on. Join ACI Learning on September 26th through the 27th here very soon uh, in London at the International Cybersecurity and Cloud Expo to experience the latest innovations and cutting-edge technologies. Uh, so you can check them out there. Learn IT, pass your certs, get your dream job. Or if you're ready to bring your group along, you can head over to our special link and fill out the form for your team. Twit listeners actually receive at least 20% off an IT Pro Enterprise solution and can reach up to 65% for volume discounts depending on the number of seats that you need. So learn more about ACI Learning's premium training options across audit, 
IT and cybersecurity readiness, all you got to do is go to go.acilearning.com slash twit for individuals. Use code twit30 for 30% off a standard or premium individual IT pro membership. That's go.acilearning.com slash twit. And we thank them so much for their continued support of Tech News Weekly and the Twit Network. All right, Micah, over to you. Yeah, so uh, it's it's very easy to look at this device that I have in front of me or perhaps my phone yeah. and say, you know what? There are a number of ways that this thing is tracking what I'm doing. Um, I look at my browser and I think about how when I visit websites, it's looking at my behavior. It's paying attention to what sites I visit and to be able to kind of reconcile that uh, to handle those privacy concerns in certain ways. And especially in the state of California, to be able to opt out of a lot of that stuff because of the protections that we have here uh, or if you're lucky enough to live in a place protected by GDPR, uh, in some cases, even more privacy. But one place people might not be looking and should be looking is at the vehicle they're driving around. Joining us today to talk about the worst product category they've ever reviewed for privacy. It's the Mozilla Foundation's own Misha Rykov. Welcome back to the show, Misha. Hello. Hello, it's good to have you back. So I think it's important because I think the last time we had you was uh, back in 2022. Um, could you start by telling us about the uh, Mozilla Foundation's privacy not included work, the work that you do, what it is, how you go about doing it, how it came about, and then tell us about what you call <coughs> privacy dings. Sure. So we started in 2017 as a consumer guide. We reviewed so uh over this time, over 500 products, uh, mainly connected things like uh, cameras, the Alexa, and uh, all things like uh, uh, Google connected things. But uh, last year, we looked also a lot into the apps. Uh, so uh, what we do, we, we look through all the privacy doc documentations. We also do some privacy and security checks. And we ask three uh, main questions. One is what data is collected and what's done with, with it. Is it being shared? Is it being sold? Second question, what can users do about it? Can they opt out or can they uh, delete data collected about them? And third, what is the known track record of this particular uh, things? Yeah, uh, have we seen a lot of data leaks in the past like we see uh, with Facebook or was it uh, decent and... Uh, and nothing bad happened so far. On top of this uh, privacy questions, we also check the minimum security standards. So we check if the product has uh, encryption, a strong password, uh, does it push updates? Uh, does it have uh, some vulnerability management in place, ideally bug bounty, and if the privacy policy is in place? Since two years, we look also at AI. We only start looking into it. It's really hard to access AI trustworthiness of anything because we don't have many documents about it. But actually in case of vehicles and in case of last year's uh, mental health apps, uh, reproductive health apps, we already started 
assessing uh, based on the news articles, based on the feedback uh, from the users, if AI is uh, trustworthy or not. And we could already this year already uh, with some dings on the AI as well. So talking about dings, if we see that a product is not meeting any of these points that I just mentioned, we give it a ding. And if it has uh, two out of three uh, privacy ding, or if it has a, a security ding, then we put an overall ding. And this year, we looked at 25 uh, car brands and all of them earned our ding. So all of them are either bad or very bad in terms of uh, users' privacy. Understood. Okay. So with the, the, the dings figured out and kind of the, the understanding of the guide, um, this is what really stuck out for me in this uh, latest research that you, that you did, because I'd argue that folks don't really think of cars necessarily when they're thinking about tech privacy and security. Certainly, they, they look at the um, review guides and look at the safety concerns for the vehicle. They look at the mileage for the vehicle. They look at, uh, if, if it's a, an electric vehicle, the range for the vehicle. But this is a category that uh, I, I would argue kind of flies under the radar. So what led the team to actually set their sights on the automotive industry? Like who had that thought in the first place that, oh, this is somewhere where we should be looking? So we have heard some uh, some rumors uh, just on the internet, but also from, from some of people who drive cars uh, from different directions. It didn't come from me because I live in Europe and I, and I just bike around. I would never think I'm more concerned about e-bikes and scooters here. But uh, some of the, um, some of my colleagues in the US told us that after she bought a car, the dealer kind of forced her to download an app and without it, she would not uh, like, like he would not sign some paper. Wow. Um, another thing we have heard from one of uh, our co colleagues is that he rented the car and then he connected his phone to, to the car and then the car, the smart car started in the line of like, okay, like we now like downloaded something from your phone. And then like he shared it with us and we looked on the web and in indeed there were a lot of stories how people just lease a car for one week, maybe going on vacation. And then later in this car, we found their SMS, their uh, pictures, their uh, contact lists. And then we realized that actually car can has much more data, can have much more data than a phone. And on top of it, it has a lot of sensors. It has uh, cameras. And it, and it has a telematic devices, all kind of third party things on it. And also you connect it to a lot of apps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sometimes you have app from your car manufacturer and you also use a lot of entertainment apps or, or, or people use uh, navigation apps. And all of this looks like a big soup. Add on top of it, uh, insurances pay as you go. Add on top of it, uh, 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 Wi-Fi services or like uh, network services uh -huh. that 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 exist. Add their data, huge data broker industry that is happy to buy the data and and sell it, this data. 
and then and then yeah we we got really really uh, curious about what's going on there understood so then let's talk about you you did you did briefly mention this the kind of data that car brands are collecting on us so you talked about kind of where they're collecting the data let's talk about what data is being collected because you know someone might go wait i, I just thought they knew how fast i was driving or perhaps if i'm putting in my uh location into the maps then they know um where i'm going but f- according to this guide they're gathering a lot more and some of them are gathering some categories you might not expect. Yes. Yes. So, uh, again, like what we can assess is what they write. So we, uh, so here we can like, we can only access by, by, by trusting them, Mm -hmm. but also, uh, if they mention something, we don't know if they actually collect it. So, Based on the privacy documentation that these companies published themselves, uh, we, are, we are just shocked by the amount and by, by different types of data being co- collected there. So it starts with the, with the obvious stuff, with stuff that they say they co- collect for safety, uh, such things like speed, acceleration, location, uh, how much you use brakes and, and when. Uh, so how you'd open your, your, your like window glass, some uh, simple things. Then it moves on to more, uh, creepy things like, like the, like, uh, uh, recordings of, of the, the sound of what's going on in, in the car and video recording or other sensor, uh, recordings. And then we saw like in a lot of cases that they can also collect things like gender, race, uh, immigration status. Uh, and then it goes creepy with some mentioning, um, information, uh, which is genetical or information about sex life. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yes. Wow. Here we are. It, it, you, it leaves you wondering if, if they have to put that in the privacy policy, how are they going about collecting that kind of information? It almost makes you not want to touch the steering wheel. Like, is it gathering my DNA every time I touch my steering wheel? How does it have genetic information on me? And it's more so what kind of like a, uh, I guess to use a pun here, a drive-by situation where in your normal interactions with the vehicle, if they happen to gain that information based on your behavior, then they could make those inferences about sex life or uh, genetic information. I mean, how does me buying a Kia result in them potentially having genetic information on me? Or is it just kind of, they're just, they're just laying it all out there just Covering in case. The tracks. Yeah. They, in case we happen to scoop up your saliva while we're, while you're driving around, <laughs> you never know. Yeah. You never know what, what, what is your thought on those specific categories that just seem like they should never know that in my car? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. And that's exactly the problem. So mm-hmm. me and my colleagues spent six hours, 600 hours looking through the mess of, of, of myriads of different documents that these uh, companies put out there. And then the question is, how can a user possibly understand what data collected, why, how and for what purpose and it's becoming even even harder when you try to get location specific um, answers like what if i'm located in california what about 
me being in Vermont? What if, uh, what if I'm, I'm in India or I'm in France? It, like, like we could not find uh, also that stuff. So all, all we know is that some uh, companies and it's Kia and it's also Nissan say that they may collect uh, sex life data or like sexual information. We don't know what it means. I would be very curious myself. Um, we don't know how exactly, but like uh, technically it might be possible through the sensors and uh, cameras and of course audio that's there. Ah. Uh, and legally it's possible that their legal department just copy pasted all things that are even possible to be collected and then pasted there just just in case. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Wow. 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 Um, so many of the largest online sites and services offer ways for users to opt out of data collection and in some cases delete personal data that gets hoovered up by them. Uh, we've got cookie notices. We've got GDPR banners. We've got uh, in California banners that let us uh, click a button that says, do not sell my personal information. Do these car brands offer the same? Can I tell Kia to stop listening to the sounds I make in my vehicle? So many do, yes. Many offer some ways to opt out uh, from selling data or to opt out from targeted advertisement uh, or some others say that they only do it with your consent. Uh, the issue here, A, uh, once some data has been collected, you lost control over it already. So mm -hmm. deleting data uh, in general is hard thing to do. With this 20, 25 brands, only with one, and this is French uh, Renault, uh, we could prove that they really uh, re respect the request to delete data with any user, regardless of where they are. Everyone else only promise it to people who are in Europe or to people who are in uh, California, Colorado. Uh, my colleague who has a Mazda asked Mazda, okay, what data do you have on me? And they answered, we don't have to answer because you're, you're in Vermont. You're not wow. actually based. You're not covered uh, by the, uh, by the CCPA. So she was not even able to know what data has been collected on her, yet alone uh, deleted. Uh, so we also expect this opt outs to be a tricky things. And finally, we stand strongly with the position that this should not be opt out, this should be opt in thing. So uh, users ha should have the right of informed decision about it. Uh, at so so at, at least it should be standard like we see with, with the cookies on the web. Yeah, this annoying pop-up asking you, are you okay with us collecting cookies? And then you can answer no. Uh, this is also like manipulative and annoying thing, but at least you get asked and like, and you, and you see that you get asked in case of cars, they don't ask you. They just automatically, uh, collect, sell, target you with ads. And if you want to do an opt out, it's uh, really good luck to try <laughs> find mm -hmm. how to do it. Good luck trying to. <laughs> to actually submit this request. And then, yeah, it might be tricky again, if you're not in uh, California.
for example. Yeah. Um, so we'll kind of wrap things up here, here pretty quick. Uh, I would ask you to tell us the car brands that were included in the guide, but there are 25 of them. And of course, folks need to head over and check out the privacy not included guide on this to, to learn more. Not only do you get kind of an overview, but you also get individual reviews of these, uh, car brands. So I was hoping though, you could tell us maybe the top three worst offenders and then maybe what was the, like, most glaring bit of of discovery that you had when you were looking at these uh at these car brands um along with the the sexual activity for example um why did the worst offender rank so poorly uh as as the worst offender so yeah top three and then kind of what made the worst one the worst mm-hmm it is, it is not, it is not easy. Like a lot of them are really bad. So now you're, you're showing how, how they're sorted, uh, from west, from best to worst. Uh, I would say that the worst, like group will probably include Kia and, and uh, Nissan mm-hmm. and also GM, uh, Ford, Lincoln, because they collect, uh, sex data, uh, sexual orientation data or or like genetical data and on top of it we could not confirm with any of those if they encrypt data that sits on the car and on top of it uh, they all have track record of huge data leaks or that would affect uh, usually millions of uh, users we are talking about sometimes this database is popping up on the dark web with names and social security numbers and addresses of of people who use these cars. So I just want to double down on that. You're saying that with those brands, you were not able to confirm that the data they're collecting, this private information and uh, you know secure information should be, uh, you're saying that that data they're collecting, uh, you could not confirm that they are encrypting it. And so given that they're not, that they may not be encrypting it, they are also, uh, some of the most likely to be brands that have sort of had their data leaked in the dark web. So on top of, uh, potentially not encrypting the data, they also are the victims of massive data breaches. So you have one plus one equals two in the case that unencrypted data may potentially be getting leaked with some regularity to the dark web. Uh, and that, of course, yeah, that would make you one of the worst offenders on the list. Yeah, it does. It, it does indeed looks like one, one plus one equal two. So, so, uh, when I talk encryption here, I'm talking about encryption at the car. So with most of car, uh, brands, we could not confirm it. This being said, it's typical technical task and, uh, it looks like only Tesla really took it um, uh, seriously because like they did engage uh, people uh, um, offering them huge money if they hack the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, Te- Tesla still got a lot of uh, dings. It's not the best at all, but they ca- kind of pushed hard this encryption on the car think uh, everyone else encrypt something and don't encrypt something so uh, that's a problem because it means that individual cars can be hacked easily um, on top of it when I talk data breach at scale it means that the databases that are sitting somewhere there in the cloud 
with um, data on millions of people, they are also vulnerable to the attacks because we see uh, often some malware going on or, again, this database is being leaked to dark web. So we are talking about weak security both on the car and on the on the database level, be it cloud or some physical uh, data center, whatever they have. Mm-hmm. It looks to be weak. Understood. Um, uh, the last thing I'll ask you here, because uh, this does leave me feeling a little bit hopeless. Is there anything that car owners can do to protect their privacy and their online security? Like what, what's the recommendation at this point, uh, other than to bike instead of <laughs> drive a car? <laughs> well, uh, we, we invite everyone to sign up a, a petition on, on our web page. We are, we are also preparing crown to ask for the federal privacy law so that not only people based in uh, California, but everyone in the U.S. can have similar protection like all Europeans have it uh, covered by GDPR. But if you just have a car now, we would suggest you to do opt-outs from selling your data. Uh, We would suggest you opt out from targeted ads of your data and maybe go to our page and take a look at uh, what's written about your car and we give their individual tips about it. Oh, wonderful. Excellent. Um, Misha, I want to thank you so much for your time today, uh, for the time that you and your colleagues spent 600 hours working through all of this information. Uh, I think it's incredible what the Mozilla Foundation is doing in terms of doing the hard, hard labor to protect all of us. Uh, of course, they can head over to foundation.mozilla.org. Uh, we'll have a direct link to the Privacy Not Included guide. But is there anywhere where folks can go to follow you online to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, the best is to go to privacynotincluded.org. Oh, excellent. All right. Yeah, that's a, that's a much easier URL. Uh, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll have you back on the show in the future for the next round of, of mm. whatever you happen to be looking at. And, uh, yeah, keep up the great work and, uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. All righty, folks. Up next, we have Jason Howell's story of the week, all about kind of a really big uh cyber attack uh and and uh we don't see this too often but uh actually kind of playing ball with the with the hackers and um you hear that what is that phrase we don't negotiate with terrorists right but occasionally that can happen um we will be back with that story of the week but i do want to take a quick break to tell you about one of our sponsors today it's express vpn who are bringing you this episode of tech news weekly um i'm curious have you ever browsed in incognito mode well Keep in mind that it's probably not as incognito as you think. Incognito mode, like the Chrome browser itself, is a Google product, and Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. Huh. My story of the week has to do with that, actually. Mm. Uh, There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit against the company in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. What's Google's defense? incognito does not mean invisible. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? Well, with ExpressVPN. 
It's what I use. Even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked without something like ExpressVPN, and data brokers can still buy and sell your data. One of the data points they use is your IP address. Data harvesters can use your IP address to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. You become one of many in this huge uh, group that is all using one IP address. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you're given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more more difficult for third parties to identify you and harvest your data because your behavior is masked by the behavior of many others. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, your laptop, your smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. I use ExpressVPN everywhere. And what's great about it is I often forget I have it turned on because it's fast. A lot of times, at least in the past, I can remember uh, activating VPNs and knowing, okay, we're going to return to dial-up speeds here. That is not something that I experienced with ExpressVPN. It was so easy to install, so easy to get started, so easy to use. And I have to say, I'm looking forward to uh, the next version of tvOS, the operating system for the Apple TV, because they're finally bringing uh, VPN app support to Apple TV. So uh, as soon as that's ready with ExpressVPN... I'll be able to turn that on right there on the Apple TV and have uh, VPN support there, which is handy when occasionally I want to travel to other countries so that I can watch content that is only available in other countries. Uh, so if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash TNW and get three extra months free with a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash TNW. Go to expressvpn.com slash TNW to learn more. And of course, our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, we are back from the break, and that means it's time for your story of the week. I'm going to do my best Steve Gibson impression for this story. Okay. No, actually, I'm not going to oh. do any any sort of impression. Guarantee you, Steve Gibson is going to be talking about this story uh, next week on Security Now. So definitely to, you know, check that out, twit.tv slash SN. But MGM re- Resorts, um, not just in Vegas, but around the country, around the U.S., were shut down, still in certain ways are shut down uh, as a result of a major uh, ransomware attack. At first, it was kind of unconfirmed, but now we're kind of getting more information today that uh, it did indeed happen. It's the most notable hotels when you're in Las Vegas. Um, so that's Bellagio, Mandalay Bay, the Cosmopolitan, also six other hotels around the country, uh, all impacted by this ransomware attack, taking down all sorts of things. This was uh, first detected Sunday in the evening, and the attack was executed by social engineering, uh, of course, mm-hmm. because that's always, you know, we, we say it so often on this network. And I, you know, I know on security now as well, social engineering is just such an Achilles heel, uh, when it comes to keeping places secure and keeping security, you know, top, uh, top, you know, running smoothly. Um, in this case, it was social engineering that allowed for the attackers to identify an MGM employee who worked in IT support. And that happened via LinkedIn. Uh, And then they called the MGM help desk 
with that information and through that we're somehow able to get access total attack time and uh reportedly 10 minutes of oh, time humans uh, are ultimately the vulnerability almost no every kidding, time right oh, um man. and you know you have to imagine groups that do this and especially at this level like they're really good at the social game like mm-hmm. getting on the phone with something like they know how to how to talk the talk as far as that's concerned this is a company that's valued at 34 billion dollars and wow. took 10 minutes to do this um executed um by a ransomware as a service group called alphv and this resulted in i actually first heard about this from my sister she was um she and her husband have a solar company and they were there for a solar convention and uh, I just happened to call and she's like, yeah, it's really weird here. Like we're staying at one of the MGM hotels and everything is just dead silent because, you know, the rooms were locked. So hotel guests were getting locked out of their rooms because their cars didn't work. Digital key cards inoperable. So that made charging of goods and services unavailable. Wow. The mobile app was disabled and actually still is disabled uh, today. Here we are at the end of the week. Um, so the hotels were, you know, resorting to running transactions manually, which you imagine oh, with the numbers that they're dealing with, just how much of a nightmare that probably is. Uh, check-ins taking hours to complete slot machines, completely unavailable. That was one thing my sister uh, mentioned. She's like walking through the room. It's just like, it's so eerie. Like you're used to these, the sounds of slot machines everywhere and it's nothing. It's just wow, like dead silent. That's almost <laughs> enough for me to like celebrate. Because that means people weren't just losing their money. Totally, for right? At least a few hours. Well, for at least a few hours. Well, you know, they were probably going to another place. Oh, you know what I dang mean? Dang it, you're right. And that's what she was saying. She's like, it's it's dead here. I mean, people obviously realize like they can't spend their money on these slot machines, so they're going somewhere else. Um, as of yesterday, the MGM Resorts website had been down for more than 84 hours. Is it still down? MGM resorts i haven't visited it today but i have a feeling yeah it's still down so i mean you know a pretty severe impact on a company worth an insane amount of money um the fbi and mgm have been pretty pretty mum on the details of the breach um but it does appear that MGM is not giving into the ransomware payment demands uh that's actually news as of this morning um and th- th- what's interesting also about this is like this is not the only thing of this nature that's happened in the last handful of weeks. Uh, weeks ago, Caesars Entertainment had its own cyber attack. Wow. Data stolen, threatened to be released. The hackers, um, in that case, successfully uh, extorted money from Caesars. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal just reported that Caesars paid a $30 million ransom in order to do it. So the two different organizations taking completely different approaches, right? Yeah. And the risks associated with paying versus And it's not. my understanding that um, federal groups are against yeah. the pay because then it yes. does make it a valuable thing. Yep. And so there's been even kind of uh, trouble with insurance companies offering uh, insurance for cyber attacks in the U.S. Mm. because the federal groups don't want those insurance companies to pay out to the ransomware attackers because then it in, uh, you know potentially encourages others to be able to do the same. Yeah. So Dude. I'm surprised that Caesars you know was was I guess allowed to do that or if they chose to do that without 
consult. I don't know how that all works. I don't know how that works either. I also, yeah. do, are it, they are they actually beholden to? Right. Yeah. Because are at the you, end of the day, it is their money. It's their money and their it, company. Yeah. Right. So Yeah. That that and that could be the difference. Maybe if it's a government body that gets uh, ransomware, they aren't allowed yeah, to pay right. or something. Um, but then I'm also curious. You said it was a ransomware as a service group that did it yeah. did the ransomware as a service group so the company that makes the or the, the group that makes the ransomware for sale actually do this attack as sort of a case study to sell their product or did someone buy study. the ransomware <laughs> as a service product and then execute this yeah attack? That, that's a that's a really great uh great question i'm guessing the latter not the former but um you know, again, there's still not a lot of information right. that they're being. I mean, that, very that's kind of the whole point. Is, forthcoming about, yeah. um, because I imagine you know the more information that's out there, the more difficult it it is for them to kind of um, you know kind of seal up and and control what's exactly. going on right now. But um, but yeah, pretty pretty major stuff uh, impacting a, a heck of a lot of money and uh, just kind of. I, I, you just don't see that very often to, to shut down that much of, right. of Vegas, just as one example, you know. And Ooh. I mean, it's it's chilling. I feel like it's a movie. It, yeah, plot. It, does, <laughs> it does feel like a movie plot. And I think it's relatively low stakes. The company itself doesn't feel that way, I'm sure. Sure. But it's low stakes in terms of uh, sort of public safety. And, and so what's chilling to me about this is the fact that they're able to shut down that robust yeah. Know, network that by doing that, they had the app, they had the website, they had the keys, they had the slot machine, like they had everything. Mm -hmm. And so think about them doing that to uh, a power supply, uh, you know, or sure. to uh, a water purification plant. Or there's, it's that's what's chilling are about just it. much higher. Yeah. 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 And I mean, to to kind of, you know, wheel back to kind of MGM, like, yeah, that's that's scary stuff for sure. As far as MGM's business, like it's also interesting to kind of see how this impacts. Oh, it actually kind of ties in with the unity conversation from earlier. Um, kind of customer trust. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if if you are someone who goes to Vegas, who stays at MGM resorts, and then, you know, you just happen to go during this time and you can't do what you normally go there to yeah. do, you know, does that impact your trust of that brand going forward? Like there's going to be some, I, I think I've read some, you know, articles that say a very material impact, long-term material impact for MGM. We're not saying it's a, like that this. MGM place, we're going to go somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. They can't protect themselves. So we don't, or, and maybe they don't even know as far as that goes. So like, yeah, we were there and I couldn't, we were in the slot machine. Yes. So exactly. I'm going to go somewhere else from now on. <laughs> I couldn't put my money in that machine and watch it go away. The so. place that I went to with the uh, fire alarms going off every night at midnight and 4 a.m., I don't want to go to another one of those properties again. Yeah, right. And it's not really their fault. If yeah. it was some, and if it was a malfunction, then yes. But what I believe it to be, which was somebody being, a, a turd a jerk and yeah. going around and pulling it uh but it's still like left a bad taste in my mouth for as sure far as this place goes so something as bad as all of that yeah ugh, waiting hours to be able to check in people don't oh, like to be inconvenienced so, yeah no yeah. way no way so interesting stuff like i said surely steve gibson's going to be talking about this because i'm sure we're going to learn more over the weekend uh more details about uh kind of what's what's actually going on here 
And Steve would probably have a very good explanation as far as absolutely like, you know, ransomware as a service. Yeah. Who is actually the perpetrator as far as that's concerned? And, yeah, I'm and looking forward to hearing about it. Yeah. All right. Uh, coming up next, another story that I considered for my story of the week, oh. which is the Google antitrust trial. And so Mike is going to talk a little bit about that. But first... Let's take a break. Thank the sponsor of this episode of Tech News Weekly, and that is Drata. Is your organization finding it difficult to collect manual evidence and achieve continuous compliance as it's growing and scaling? Well, as a leader in cloud compliance software by G2, Drata streamlines your SOC 2, your ISO 27001, your PCI DSS, GDPR, HIPAA, and other compliance frameworks while providing 24-hour continuous control monitoring so you can focus on scaling securely. With a suite of more than 75 integrations, Drata easily integrates through applications like AWS, Azure, GitHub, Okta, and Cloudflare. Countless security professionals from companies including Lemonade, Notion, and Bamboo HR have shared how crucial it's been to have Drata as a trusted partner in the compliance process. So you can expand security assurance efforts like they did uh, using the Drata platform, which allows companies to see all of their controls and easily map them to compliance frameworks to gain immediate insight into framework overlap. Drata's automated dynamic policy templates support companies new to compliance using integrated security awareness training programs and automated reminders ensure smooth employee onboarding. As the only player in the industry to build on a private database architecture, your data can never be accessed by anyone outside your organization. All customers receive a team of compliance experts, including a designated customer success manager. And Drata's team of former auditors has conducted more than 500 audits, so they know what they're doing. Your Drata team keeps you on track to ensure that there are no surprises, no barriers, Plus, Drata's pre-audit calls prepare you for when your audits actually begin. Drata's Audit Hub is the solution to faster, more efficient audits. You can save hours of back-and-forth communication, never misplacing crucial evidence, and you can share documentation instantly. All interactions and data gathered uh, data gathering can occur in Drata between you and your auditor. So you won't actually have to switch between different tools or correspondence strategies either. With Drata's risk management solution, you can manage end-to-end risk assessment and treatment workflows. So you're flagging risks, scoring them, and then you can decide whether to accept, to mitigate, transfer, or avoid them. Drata maps appropriate controls to risks. That simplifies risk management and automates the process. Drata's Trust Center provides real-time transparency into security and compliance posture, which improves sales, security reviews, and better relationships with customers and partners, which is very nice and important. So say goodbye to manual evidence collection. Say hello to automated compliance by visiting drata.com slash twit. That's D-R-A-T-A dot com slash twit bringing automation to compliance at Drata Speed. And we thank Drata for their support of Tech News Weekly. All right. This is a big week for Google (laughs) when it comes to this whole antitrust, you know, threat, the the threat of, uh, of, 
of going to court and changing, you know, really up and upending potentially Google's business. It's uh, been more than 20 years since we last saw uh, big tech at the forefront of something uh, sort of facing off with the federal government at this level. Mm. Um, more than 20 years ago, the federal government looked at Microsoft as a potential monopoly. And that was a messy, messy, messy time where lots of money was spent and uh, <clears throat> perhaps not all eyes were. It, it's interesting more than 20 years later, how the landscape of like of, of, of reporting has changed too. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are oh, yeah. more opportunity for more eyes to be on this. Um, the U S justice, justice department plus 38 States and territories um, have uh, kicked off as of Monday, September 12th. No, that's Tuesday, September 12th. Isn't Tuesday, it? Yeah. yeah. Tuesday, September 12th, um, a 10 week trial. Uh, with Google. Uh, they're trying to see if Google has basically used its its place in the marketplace um, and the agreements that it's made to uh, <laughs> do what they call, quote, monopolist flexing. flexing. Mm. They're so Ooh. buff. Oh. Um, they're looking at Google's different tactics and seeing if any of what it's done has been illegal as a way to keep its search Monopoly. So this is specifically about its search monopoly. Now, one of the big concerns here is the fact, and we've known this for a long time, that Google pays Apple uh, quite a bit of money in order to be the default search provider on iPhones. And so what happens there is when I use Safari on my phone, which is the browser that most people are going to use on their iPhones, um, and I type something into the bar at the top, it's going to use Google as the search engine to do that. I have the option to go into my phone and choose a different search engine, but most people do not opt to do so. And so how much does Google pay Apple to keep that default search engine provider? Ten billion dollars annually. Mm-hmm. I talked about this yesterday. Well, I should say we talked about this yesterday on Windows Weekly with Richard Campbell and Paul Therott. And one thing that Paul said is what that tells us is that Google is making at least $10 billion on this deal to be the default search engine provider. They to pay $10 billion. They have to at least be making $10 billion uh, a year to be able to do that. Otherwise, they would not do that because what it results in is when I do a search and as I'm looking through my Google search results, I'm getting the ads that are included in that, although I'm not because I have different stuff in place to keep me from seeing ads. But the average person is seeing ads. And so the company is making money mm. off of serving up those ads. And when you consider how many iPhones are out in the world and other Apple devices, that results in a lot of income for Google. So it happily hands over $10 billion annually. But the government doesn't like that, Um, does not like the idea of Google paying money to get that default search engine provider uh, on its own operating system, Android. It is going to be the default search engine provider. 
And so when you look at that, then suddenly, if you've got Android and you've got iOS and and Google gets to be the search engine on both of those, that's the swath of all of the stuff out there. So, you know, maybe there's something to this is what I'm saying. I'm no lawyer. I don't even play one on TV, but <laughs> arguably there's something there. Um, Google or the government is going, look, these seem to be a way uh, that Google is not only kind of solidifying its dominance as the search engine of choice, but also to eliminate rivals. Any search engine that tries to come along and compete doesn't seem to be able to compete because most people don't know to go in and change their search engine. And I would argue that in the cases where people have maybe dabbled with other search engines, it ends up not being that great. So yeah, I think that's a really important point. Yeah. So that, that too is like, see, then that's why this isn't, I think, just a, uh, an open and shut case, right? Because no, there, there's, there's an argument here that if you make the best thing, that's the whole point of, of, you know, yeah. anti-monopoly stuff is, or not anti-monopoly stuff, but the capitalism is, if you make the best product, then you should be the, the, you know, the one that makes the most money. And that competition is what's supposed to result in that. Now, um again we haven't seen anything like this uh in so long and when the microsoft thing happened it did have a huge impact on the industry at the time but the industry has changed so much in more than 20 years that we're looking at this as a whole new kind of uh that th- we can't look back to that too much as a determining factor for what the impact is going to be. Mm-hmm. And there are kind of two outcomes here. The government wins and big tech is going to start cowering. A li- it's going to have to start cowering a little bit because it's seeing that in a modern world and a new way of the Internet uh, and with modern technology that uh, the federal government can make an argument that holds that big tech needs to watch itself or if Google wins, then this could be precedent set for all of the other bills, all of the other laws that are in place that are trying to limit big tech. Mm. So it's a gamble for the federal government in one way, because if it loses, then this focus on big tech and trying to kind of um, rein in some of the powers there could be it could that that drive could be harmed uh but if they win then this is the first of what we could probably see many instances of regulations and laws going forward um there are other lawsuits against google itself meta which is facebook's parent company amazon and apple that are uh kind of under consideration so uh, the federal government is not just looking at Google. This is just kind of the first one that's kicked off. And again, most of this surrounds Google outside of its own ecosystem, choosing to make it uh, or uh, what, what's the word working to make itself the default search engine provider. Um, now, that said, Google's big argument is that in the modern web, Googling is only one type of searching content. They argue, uh, for example, that when you go to Amazon, you don't Google search on Amazon. 
you use Amazon search to find products. Mm -hmm. When you go to Instacart, you don't Google search to find the groceries. You use Instacart's own search engine. When you go to TikTok, you don't have to search at all. It'll just pop up for you. But um, <laughs> if you do search there, yeah. that's TikTok. So it's saying, look, we're just one of many search engines that people are using these days. We're just that old school search engine. How do you do, fellow kids? We're just that old school search mm -hmm. engine just existing in this modern place where there are so many ways that people search for stuff. I totally agree with that. So I, it's sounding to me like you, you feel that um, Google... Well, I'll just ask you. How, how are you how feeling do you about feel? this? Yeah. Where, where do you stand I mean, on this? We, we talked about this a little bit uh, yesterday on This Week in Google. Um, it was kind of at the top of the, the story heap because, mm -hmm. you know, it is big, big news and it's been a long time coming. And I think we, for the most part, we were all kind of in, a, in agreement that, I mean, when it comes to a search product, there is competition. It does exist. People do have a choice and Google's product is the best. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, in our opinion, yeah. but I think resoundingly that is, you know, more likely people are going to agree with that statement than others. If you're a business, you're you're working to create a product that is the best in its category. There's nothing criminal about that. Correct. Um, if Google is doing something that eliminates you know, others and, and, you know, eliminates their ability to, to compete. I mean, that, that is the essence of what we're talking here. That's a problem. But I mean, when you're talking about like Google search on, on iPhone, this is a deal that, that Apple, a Apple has agreed to mm -hmm. and Google's, you know, paying them money. I, like, I, I guess it, it just kind of falls apart. Like there's a whole lot of, for, for something that makes for, uh, for antitrust to be all about like a lack of choice. I feel like there's a lot of choice. Yeah. I mean, literally and, on my phone, I can choose between the five. It's just what is chosen by default. Yeah, and, sure. And, and so it's almost like we are, we are saying that I, I, sometimes this stuff feels so cynical because I think that it treats human beings uh, or it assumes stupidity in human right, beings right, almost. Right. Yeah. And it's like, because it's the default search engine, um, a stupid, dumb human isn't going to know right. uh, that they can. And, it, and it's, it's just, and that's kind of cynical. And, and mm -hmm. I don't know, I, I think we're more sophisticated than that. I would, I say I'm, words behaviorally. Yes. You often don't make that choice to change. But the choice is still provided. Yeah, it's there. It's been provided. Uh, do you do you choose to use it? Is it being buried? Like, is it being intentionally right. buried right. so that people don't do it? Microsoft has done some of that in the past. Yeah. And even in the modern uh, way of doing things where it was very hard to change your default um, browser on uh, Windows and then they straightened up and flew right after a while. Yeah. Yeah. That I argue is. But this setting has been in the same place for as long as I can remember, the same Very place to go to get it. I would say this. I think that it wouldn't be a bad idea for Google to stop paying Apple $10 billion to be the default search engine and then let Apple handle the way that it does that going forward. Mm -hmm. I think that that could be the one concession that it makes. And then all the rest of it, I, I'm just 100% on board with like, they're making the best thing. It does the best searches. It's good at what it does. 
And there are other ways to do this sort of thing. Like Google, a search engine is no longer the only, you know, the the be all end all as far as this is concerned. The number of times that it talks about that Apple deal leads me to believe that that's their biggest issue. And so if they get rid of that, then yeah, suddenly. And then it's just Apple's choice. Does Apple, even though they're not getting, it's not getting paid anymore. Does it keep just Google as a default search engine? Does it have a setup option where you choose? Mm -hmm. And this was something that Paul Therott pointed out that I thought was really important is that what happens if Apple defaults then to another, um, or another search engine. So let's say DuckDuckGo, just for example, mm-hmm. or Bing even. Let's go with Bing. Um, and the story suddenly becomes, for the first time in the history of iOS, people know how to change their default search engine because they're all changing it to Google. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, right. Like that that becomes the story that people suddenly, the, the most searched term on Google is how to switch to Google search. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. And that would be a night, a PR nightmare for any search engine that is, you know, other than Google, because yeah. I think that that would people, I think would end up going and switching it to, they, they, they'd see the, the search results from the other thing. They would and more likely like, do what is that? this? Yeah. This doesn't work. I don't, what I want my, I want what I had Wait before. Minute, where'd back. It go? Yeah. yeah. I will say this too, though. Google on my iPhone has gotten a lot worse in helping me find what I'm looking for. Yeah. In yes. recent, only in recent months, even. It's not even been in recent years. In recent months, it's becoming like a, uh, a recipe blog on a website where there are hmm. nine pages of stuff you don't need before you get the actual search result. And I don't know what that's all about, but it's like trying to be smart. And then as you keep yeah. scrolling, then it's like, maybe you want to search for rel- you know, terms relative to this. No, I don't. I just want what I was looking for. Uh, so that's been kind of frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you dabbled at all with the, the AI search experience no, at all? Uh, I think it's because it, it's just like Siri. Siri disappointed me one too many times in the early days. And so I hardly ever use Siri anymore. Yeah. Uh, Bing or not Bing, but Google barred searchy stuff has just been not good. Mm-hmm. was not good for me enough that I just don't even, I don't have the time yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. to mess around with. It. I don't want to. Although I did just get access to the notebooks ML oh, okay. system. So I am yeah. looking forward to trying that out. Yeah. But super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, you you said it was a you know a ten week trial ish mm-hmm. somewhere around ten there, week anyways. trial plus all of the years of back and forths that I'm sure to come afterwards. Yes, indeed. Yeah, this yeah. is nowhere. Yeah, we are nowhere near the end. We're at the beginning of the trial, but it's not like ten weeks from now. It's all done. Yeah. Like you know, the, this is also you know part of the big swirl of. You know, cracking down on big tech. Yep. And this is just one of, of many. I'm sure we're going to see many more cases in the next yeah. couple of years for Indeed. sure. All right. And we will talk about it here on Tech News Weekly when that happens. Twit.tv slash TNW. We do the show every Thursday morning uh, at 11 a.m. You can actually watch us live if you like. Twit.tv slash live. But even if you do that, please subscribe. Go to twit.tv slash TNW. You'll find all the ways to subscribe to this show. That's really the most important part uh, for us is that you subscribe and you get it automatically. So thank you for doing that. Uh, also, if you'd like to get all of our shows ad free, including this very show, Tech News Weekly, consider checking out Club 
twit. Uh, starting at $7 a month or $84 a year, you out there can join the club at twit.tv slash club twit. And when you do, you get some pretty great things. First, you get every single Twit show with no ads, just the content, because you, in effect, are supporting the show. So you get to just listen to the content itself. You also gain access to the members-only Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else. Behind the scenes, before the show, after the show, special Club Twit events get published there. So if you're considering joining the club just now, you will be happy to hear that there's going to be lots of stuff in that feed for you to check out. A huge back catalog. Plus, you gain access to the members-only Discord server. A fun place to go to chat with your fellow club twit members and also those of us here at twit uh, it's a lot of fun to hang out there lots of different topics um great live chat and uh, everything in between again all at twit.tv slash club twit i say starting at seven dollars a month it's not a tiered subscription where you get more if you pay more but rather that we heard from some folks who said hey we'd like to give you more money because you keep adding things to the club it's more valuable so we want you to or so we want to be able to give you more money so if you pay seven dollars if you pay more than seven dollars you will get access to all that great stuff um you also will gain access to some club twit exclusive shows there's the untitled linux show which is a show all about Linux. There's also Hands on Windows, a program from Paul Therott that covers Windows tips and tricks, and my own show, uh, Hands on Mac, which covers Apple tips and tricks. Plus, we've got uh, the program from Scott Wilkinson. It's Home Theater Geeks, which is relaunched in the club, uh, covering all sorts of home theater topics, gizmos, gadgets, tips, tricks, and everything in between, and a new show from Jason Howell, all about artificial intelligence. Uh, If you would like, oh, again, that's at twit.tv slash club twit. Head there, sign up, and we thank you for helping to uh, keep what we do going. It is uh, through those generous um, con- contributions that we can continue to do what we do. Yeah. Uh, if you would like to follow me online or check out the work that I'm doing, uh, you can follow me on many a social media network at Micah Sargent or head to chihuahua.coffee. That's C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee where I've got links to the places I'm most active online. Uh, check out later today if you're a Club Twit member, uh, Hands on Mac. Uh, you can check out on Sunday, Ask the tech guys, Leo Laporte, will be back and will be answering your questions live on air. And on Tuesdays, you can watch iOS Today with Rosemary Orchard and yours truly, where we cover all things iOS. And if you got time this Saturday at uh, 3 p.m. Pacific, um, I am running a D&D live stream. Uh, it's a it's a high-level game that is going to raise money for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Um, the donations that you make will actually impact the game, so you can give <laughs> some of the players like potions and items, and if you want to really make them squirm, you can summon monsters. Um, and all of this money uh, goes to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So that starts at 3 p.m. Pacific uh, at twitch.tv slash Relay FM. Uh, nice. So consider tuning in then. Jason Howell, tell us about you. Good stuff. Um, yes, I am working on an AI show with Jeff Jarvis. I think we've landed on the title AI Inside. And uh, that is going to be in the club for now, twit.tv slash club twit. Um, but you can actually, if you're not in the club and you want to watch it being recorded, you can uh, check out the live stream. We're going to be live streaming that. So that happens every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific. Um, you can find me at Jason Howell on uh, Twitter. <laughs> 
Uh, you can find me twit.social slash at Jason Howell Mastodon. Really just go to a, your social network and do a search for Jason Howell and you'll probably find my account. Hopefully you don't find my doppelganger. Uh, should you, it's how, what is your username on Instagram, specifically your username on Instagram? My, my username on Instagram is that Jason Howell, just that Jason Howell. No, no any no punctuations, nothing, yes. no other letters, just Absolutely. that Jason Howell. Important to know that you're actually talking to me. That's all I'm going to say. That Jason Howell on Instagram. Uh, thank you, everyone here uh, in the studio for helping us do this show. John, John, Burke in the other room. Uh, Ant sometimes helps out. Uh, thank you so much. We couldn't do it without you. And we couldn't doubt, do it without you at home watching and listening. So thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you next time on Tech News Weekly. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> Hey, I'm Rod Pyle, Editor-in-Chief of Ad Astra Magazine, and each week I join with my co-host to bring you This Week in Space, the latest and greatest news from the final frontier. We talk to NASA chiefs, space scientists, engineers, educators, and artists, and sometimes we just shoot the breeze over what's hot and what's not in space, books, and TV. And we do it all for you, our fellow true believers. So whether you're an armchair adventurer or waiting for your turn to grab a slot in Elon's Mars rocket, join us on This Week in Space and be part of the greatest adventure of all time.